si escuchan que hay gente... Welcome everyone, you're listening to Daniel here on the D-Report. Today I'll get an opportunity to speak with Dave Poyer. I reached out to Dave Poyer in particular because I really wanted to hear his thoughts as someone that, one, is versed in the field of politics, but also his legal context as well as his personal experience as a military person and his investment in the sphere of the game of politics. I feel like I want to put together the very first talks we had right before the elections, like four years ago. <laughs> to make yeah, in 2016, of, I remember. To make sense of this whole ride, because it is bizarre. I think there's a couple things that uh, Americans need to pay close attention to. You know, the last time you had me on the show, you titled the talk after I saw, I looked and you called it uh, America's Chernobyl moment, because that's kind of what we talked about where, uh, you know, we hit this coronavirus and this pandemic and it kind of caught America with its pants down and that we have this for-profit healthcare system that, uh, you know, we've been fought for uh, to try to, you know, replace it piece by piece you know, trying to help older people make, uh, you know, reliable access to healthcare medications and children and then poor people, you know, uh, Medicaid, Medicare, you know, and then uh, of course with the, uh, um, the ACA, right? Obamacare. Uh, so you see that why haven't we been able to get a comprehensive healthcare program to get through? It's because there's so many people out there that stand and make so much money, right? One of the chief architects of the opposition is, right, the American Medical Association, right? The doctors, you've got like hospital owners like the HCA. And why? Because there's a profit to be made from it. And once again, once you hit this like pandemic level public health threat, you know, the for-profit model doesn't, it wasn't designed to withstand that. They didn't have the beds. They were, I mean, you've seen the, the things in large cities that are literally uh, putting people's corpses into refrigerated trucks because they don't even have room for them. I mean, that's what we've been reduced to is they can't even, you know what I mean? They can't even store the bodies of people they didn't save. That's how bad uh, we've been served by this for-profit healthcare system, you know? And now, you know, now we're at this next step here where we've got a presidential election and purportedly we're supposed to have a new leader coming out, you know. But it throws me off because that place, you know, of reflecting on where our conversation has been. Um, one, I want to just kind of pause and really acknowledge my gratitude to be able to kind of bounce these ideas back and forth, because one of the things that I think uh it's not a question, it's more of an assessment of like how your take is a little bit more nuanced than I think a lot of the talking heads that I'm familiar with, you know, when I turn on the news, uh, whether it's your, your basic three-letter channels. But what I, what I found interesting right now as I was looking forward to talking to you today was that I was really expecting to contain the talk within this review of what happened. You know, we saw this moment, uh, January the 6th, that was already anticipated. I had been keeping track of the, I, I would say the fringe aspect of online, but they're not even that fringe. I mean, you can just Google them. It doesn't take that hard, that much tech savvy to find these places where people are talking a little bit about what, what's going to happen. And surprisingly, uh, I was still surprised uh, that, you know, this thing went down like that. So originally I was thinking we're going to talk about this storming of the, the Capitol. And I put that in quotes. Uh, that's what part of the headlines that I've been reading. But now as of this recording, we're talking about also an impeachment. And there's where I want to pause to kind of set up like your take on it. Like, let me phrase it this way. How do you package this conversation Here's the first thing I think. 
you know, the actual charge of impeachment is, if I remember correctly, it's for this incitement of violence by the president. And last week we had something that we haven't had since, you know, 1814. And that's that we had, uh, you know, a giant horde uh, ransack our capital. And that's, that should not be taken lightly because that's the kind of things that we routinely see in, you know, emerging democracies as places we see in, you know, where there's dictatorships, you know what I mean? That was always the kind of thing that we would never deign to see in the United States. Uh, and it's, I think it's also important to understand, to unpack a lot of things about last week. So last week, that wasn't an accident. Uh, somebody, when all is said and done, somebody, and I don't think it's President Trump either, but I think somebody went to an incredible amount of uh, logistical planning and expense to try to strike the head on the match to create a fire. That, And I think they were expecting a little more, you know, because if you look at the people arrested, they are prominent Trump supporters and Proud Boys and Three Percenters things that most of the public didn't even know existed going back four years. And now it's on the lips of virtually everybody. I mean, they, even the Proud Boys were, you know, if you'd say that 2016, people would have gone, who? Now we know who they are. I mean, they were even name dropped by President Trump during the second debate, you know. But these groups here, all of their prominent leaders, like if you if you were looking at I've been going through like trying to in preparation for our, our thing, state by state, there are prominent leaders from all sorts of these like smaller groups that somehow managed to make it to Washington on a Tuesday afternoon in order to be there at, at, you know on K Street for that speech, you know. And uh, I just don't think that happened that an accident, you know. And then, and that, of course, the bulk of the people, they were bust in, you know. And and if you know anything about logistics, you know, I'm a former Marine. I used to work in the motor pool, and I know what it takes uh, just to get deliver a, a platoon of Marines. Takes several trucks, you know, or um, if you're going to use like a, what they call a five ton transport, which is the old big six-wheel transports you always see on the movies. You know what I mean? Like, you need one of those, and you need other things to carry their gear around. It's not a minor thing. So if you think about what does it take to deliver 66,000 people to the steps of the Capitol, to the White House, what does it take? Because they didn't get there by themselves. And a lot of these people are out of work to begin with, you know? A lot of these people, I mean, do you really think they're going to be staying at the Georgetown Ramada Inn on their own dime, you know? I mean, I just, I refuse to believe that someone didn't go to a great amount of trouble and expense to bring these people in for no reason whatsoever. I really do. And I I don't think we know who it is yet. I'd like to, but I don't think we know. I was in class last week. People were kind of distracted, you know, and, and we're using we're using you know the virtual class setup. So there's the the chat feature on the side, and people are private messaging me. Are you keeping track of of the of the news? What's going on on the Capitol? And I had heard a little bit before I started class, so I kind of just said yes, but I'm not really updated. And then someone in the middle of class kind of said, "I'm sorry, but I'm gonna have to interrupt the class." It's a student just saying the capital they've just stormed into the capital i don't think we should be on, in the class anymore like we should need to get wow. we need to get online and i and i kind of like i'm i'm co-teaching it so though i kind of defer to the other teacher like well let's figure this out and we kind of wrap it up and we go and then i get off and i'm thinking like man that student really seems scared uh, because the student literally was saying to the effect of like we have to pray for our country and the people and i was like well I'm missing it. Like, what is it that they're seeing? And when I get on uh, the news channels, 
I'm seeing the live feeds. I was at first confused. I was like, oh, this person, the student being is over-exaggerating. Because what I saw at the beginning, Dave, I saw the same things, but I took it differently. I thought, uh -huh. look at these ridiculous people. And by ridiculous, non-coordinated, they are, I'm seeing them, the first video feeds I saw was when they were still walking through the rotunda within the um, those ropes, those velvet ropes. They're just taking pictures and the police officers or security are kind of in the outskirts of it, not really stopping them. And then I see them start moving those uh, velvet ropes a little bit so they make a wider passage, but still ridiculous. And I'm kind of going like, wow, this is like kind of weird because they look like a tour, you know, like, like if they're taking a tour <laughs> of the Capitol and little by little right. it, it escalates. Uh, we, we, I, I start seeing the video footage of the broken windows of the trying to storm uh, inside, I think the Senate or, and, and I see a couple pictures of police. No, not police. Uh, I think it's probably secret service, maybe with guns drawn. I'm trying to kind of, pace you through what I'm going through. At the very beginning, I'm, I'm still calling them ridiculous. Like, what do they think is going to happen? You know, why are they doing this? They're just being asinine, just like non-intellectual. You know, they're probably angry, but they don't know what they're doing. Or if they do, they don't, they're not trying to take over the government. Because I want to get to that part eventually, that eventually they go like, this was an insurrection. It was a coup. It was a, a hit to the state. And then I go, yes, but I don't know if they know that because the people that I saw are wearing costumes. And then it takes me a couple of days to hear something that like I recognize from your voice, uh, your, your analysis that says, listen, if you think this was just by happenstance, you're missing the point. If you think this was just a moment of people getting too emotional and they got silly, they got ridiculous, they got even violent, but it's all emotional and it was not a coordinated effort to really kind of disrupt the, the state. I think, you know, it's fair uh -huh. for me to say you, you were being too naive. And I am comfortable now coming to terms to saying like me being watching the news on January 6th for the first few hours, if not the whole day, was very naive on my part because I couldn't see it. I couldn't see what you identified. There's got to be a support effort to get that many people there. And then I saw the reports of the next day when they interviewed a lot of the people and a lot of them were very logical. They were saying things like, we didn't come here to do that. I, you know, They even felt disappointed and shocked that some of their peers did that but but i want to just maybe highlight something and i'd like to get your thoughts on it how do we make sense of the spectrum of analysis that goes from one this is not a coup or this was not an attempted coup this was just simply people getting out of hand two to the other spectrum like no this was a failed coup a failed insurrection so if, if you were to go back and look at uh, the 1933 Reichstag building fire, uh, it was then, only then, that uh, Hitler was able to assume emergency powers as chancellor, which ultimately gave him the leverage that he needed to uh, wrest control from the president, right, the engine, uh, President Hindenburg. And uh, and also to declare martial law, and also to uh, blame the fire on the KPD, which of course was the German Communist Party at that point. And so he was able to outlaw that uh, party. You know, he's able to to almost in one fell swoop take national power and then in under the pretext of keeping order and also liquidate uh, his enemies, both in elected office and even as a entity from existence altogether, you know? And I really think that that's what we were looking at is not that this rabble was going to, you know, 
take over the Congress in any meaningful way or conduct government in any meaningful way like they claim, you know, because I've heard people that have since been arrested say, well, we were just there to demand more transparency, you know, like, yeah, right. You know what I mean? At the, you know, with the uh, tip of your shotgun, you're going to ask to look, see if you can help them count the ballots again or something. You know, I didn't believe that. But what it was is something where Trump has to go, uh oh, there's been, there's been, you know, havoc at the Capitol. And I do, I think whoever planned it, uh, I think they were paying attention to the old German Republic prior to Hitler. You know, I, well, I'm gonna, I space what the, the name of it is, but the, you know what I mean? Like the old pre war Republic, post World War days of the, the Weimar Republic. And that was, that was what they were looking at, I think, is this idea of trying to grow this Trump movement from being Twitter and being, you know, you know, kind of meeting in the shadows at gun shows to having their own compounds to meeting openly in the streets and meeting openly at hotel conventions and having their own talking heads uh, on the news. I mean, it, you know, if you look at like Gavin McInnes, right, he was one of the Proud Boys founders, a Canadian, interestingly enough. But I mean, that was a person that uh, was given center stage by, you know, by Trump, even in the earliest days of, you know, his transition after he was elected, you know. And so, they, you know what I mean? That's what I think is that they were really looking to just like they did with the the Fry Corps, right? The Germans had this kind of like, you know, predecessor to the brown shirts, predecessor to the black shirts. You know what I mean? These lot of you know, right-wing people that were, you know, very pro-military and uh, and in some cases former military people or even current military people. And, uh, you know, they kind of, they were going to kind of ionize them into uh, a, a political direct action group that got out in the street. And I do, I, I think this was an attempt to kind of like recreate what happened to Germany in, you know, 19... 19- in the 1930s because the right the kpd and uh you know i don't want to get too much into history but the the nazis i mean they used to brawl out in the middle of the streets you know and you've kind of seen a recreation of that with black lives matters and all of a sudden the you know who shows up to uh see you know what i mean supervise them all of a sudden you've got the streets lined up with uh you know hawaiian shirt wearing uh you know, body armor wearing proud boys, you know what I mean? That the cops are high-fiving and cops are letting them do whatever they want, you know? And that's that's when you see that confluence of law enforcement interests with, you know, paramilitary group interests that we start to really have to ask the hard question is how safe is our democracy? And that's one thing that really does scare the hell out of me about our this last week is both sides now have a part, bipartisan interest in beefing up the police, right? They said as it stands now, the Washington Guard has been armed under authorization of the Secretary of the Army. And now that, uh, to even get within a quarter mile of the Capitol, even if you're not even headed to the Capitol or another government building, you know what I mean? You're going to have to get through a whole phalanx of National Guard troops that are doing everything from checking for COVID to directing traffic. So now you have this militarized city, and that's exactly the kind of thing that is going to make it rough if uh, you're not in the capital. Is what are going to be the laws passed as a result of this siege of the capital? Because what were they doing? They were using all this advanced face recognition technology and gate technology and you know, and they were plucking people off of airplanes. I mean, they were. You know what I mean? They were like having federal agents arresting people back in their hometowns that had already since gone home after the after the siege, you know? And you just think that was, you know, but now you're about to see an overhaul of, you know, laws, particularly federal laws, uh, that are it's going to make it really hard to dissent no matter what side you are, no matter what type of thing you want to get out and, and protest about. It's just, I think 
I'm going to just go out and predict right now, it's going to become extra hard. So whether you're, you know, you're on the streets of Portland for Black Lives Matter or, um, you know what I mean, or whether you're one of these 3% or Proud Boy type people that have your open carry weapons in the Capitol, uh, life is going to become more difficult for you. And and I'm not in any way, shape, or form, you know, saying that these groups are on any type of uh, moral level of equivalence, just like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm definitely not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that uh, dissent and peaceable protests even, I think, are about to become more difficult. And I think to some level will be criminalized going forward. I think you're highlighting something that most people, at least those of us that have committed ourselves to really thinking about the the public space as a venue to intervene politically uh, hadn't anticipated, at least I think myself, I heard you identify the long lasting effect of this moment because I was thinking about just simply containing the analysis based on what does this mean for people to make sense of what happened, whether it's some people believing that it was just a protest that got carried away and some people became ridiculous and did you know things that destroyed property? Unfortunately, in that moment, uh, five people lost their lives. But I want to return to that for a second. But I want to highlight something that you uh, signaled here that I'd like to return to before I forget it, which is the sense of how this is something that affects all of us. So that by all of us is that if you are someone that believes that you have you know, the public space to march, to advocate for uh, new directions. Now, going forward, we may not have the same opportunity because of the way that that act will be cast as the same type of quote-unquote insurrection. When up to this point, we have used that, you know, movement. Uh, We, most of us grew up with the video and picture of the 1960s civil rights movements. And that's how we were able to push society to go in directions that were more open and respectful, even though that those streets were very hostile, very bloody. So they, they didn't right. come free. They We didn't intend them in that way. But unfortunately, we, those of us that consider ourselves part of that marginalized community, our, our previous generation of, of elders paid, you know, with, with blood, you know, broken skulls, broken bodies, bites from dogs. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't like we were breaking skulls and biting, but will become now a place that maybe will be shut down for us. And I just want to pause here because I really am concerned with something that I think um, I'm hearing from the news channels mainly and some of the reports is that they're working really hard to play a line between calling this moment an attempted insurrection to the point of like challenging the state authority. Uh, They might say like our democracy was challenged. I'm curious, why don't they call it a coup? Why don't they call it fully something that other people have heard? Because you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that a lot of people, I would say 25 and over, are familiar with what it looks like in other countries, whether it's in the continent of Africa, uh, whether it's in a Caribbean island, uh, whether it's in the places we call Latin America, Central America. We've seen the, the state authority challenge through you know, physical bodies taking the infrastructure. But here, I at first didn't think that's what was happening and I'm working myself toward analysis because I want to find who's the architect because there, it can't just be mass happenstance that gets you know gets it done. But I'm thinking about the 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 way that our conversation nationally is playing a, a, a fine balance, and I'm curious if that fine balance is for its own safety. Do you think that the reason why we're not fully going all out and calling this you know an attempted 
challenge to the present uh, state or government authority is because it would be too alarming for the United States or is it because we just don't understand it that way? Well, I have actually heard people um, describe this as a push or, a, you know, a, an attempted coup. Um, and I really, but I really think that the reason that we haven't heard it more is because I don't think some people fully understand what it means. What does a modern, what does it mean for a modern dictator to take power? And I, I, I don't think Americans uh, are fully acquainted with that the way you might be if, if you lived in Honduras or Colombia or Thailand or Indonesia, or, you know, any one of six dozen places I could continue to name where uh, all of a sudden the guy who's the prime minister or the woman who's the prime minister isn't the prime minister anymore. And it's now a general who's going to take charge of things until social stability can be restored or rule of order can be restored. And, um, you know, I, I, one of the things that I really think, and I hope I answered your question there, but I just don't think that people fully understand what it means to have your vote thrown out because it was never counted in the first place, you know, and uh, because we have been lucky enough in so many ways to, and one way of looking at it, I'm not sure where you and your losers look at it, but one of it is, is that, uh, you know, there's a certain level where we say, well, not every person is going to have all the votes cast for them counted. And at some point, there will be an irregularity or two or, or something where it's just logistically impossible to have the 100% fairest uh, election possible. And then there's, I think, some people that are slightly more cynical that will say, well, you know what I mean? Who cares if the election is free and fair? If the people that control who you get to vote for uh, give you like a highly curated slate of people you can vote for, where they preemptively weeded out all the people you'd ever want in the first place, you know, you know, I happen to be a supporter of Senator Bernie Sanders when he ran for office last year. And once you started to see the establishment change the way it does business significantly when they realized that an honest to God lefty might actually have a shot at winning the nomination on the up and up. Uh, you know what I mean? I mean, you see all sorts of things like Michael Bloomberg spent $130 million of his own money to have a, an ad campaign with John Cougar Mellencamp singing, you know, his songs on it. And, you know what I mean? All of a sudden, uh, you know, these, Iowa caucuses start to roll out a new app instead of the way they've been counting votes since, you know what I mean? Since the Grange <laughs> used to do the counting in the 1840s or whatever. And now they're, they're going to set that aside for a new app and then the app mysteriously malfunctions. So now you're not sure who won. I mean, those are the, those are the way they like, that's, you know what I mean? Like that, like technocratic, like either confusing the issue or hiding the issue uh, you know, in order to ruin election. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the stuff we've seen in places like Pakistan and Thailand more, more recently or in Ukraine. Uh, but now we're seeing it here. I mean, ask most people who won the California primary. They couldn't really tell you. Why? Because, the, you know what I mean? Like they were preemptively had so many people that were told, that if, you know, you're, it looks like Bernie's winning years, then do not talk to the press. Do not tell them how many voters are outstanding or what percent of your precincts are reporting. They literally uh, robbed Sanders of his, uh, you know, any moral victory in the press or even a legit victory when he did win. You know, he, like he really did. They really kind of let sent Mayor Pete in there to steal his thunder and then edge him out in the apps. Uh, in, in Iowa, and that's what they—that's what they do. If they can't get rid of you all together, then they just marginalize uh, your ability 
to look legitimate, you know, and that's what exactly what you've even seen now happen to, to Biden in so many ways is that there's so many people that is uh, on, you know, the president and the president's people and talking heads that have called him, you know, lent credence to, you know, Trump's ideas, this uh, stolen election that, uh, you know what I mean? Now, like the Trump or the uh, Biden transition has had to tread very lightly because almost so lightly to the point where people are openly questioned is, are they even legitimate? Do they even have a legitimate reason to transition to take over power in January 20th? And I think that's really quite fascinating. But that's what I've seen here is that he has done an enormous amount of taking Biden's power and, you know, turning down the public interest on what Biden's first hundred days in office will be like or who his appointees are. Uh, that's completely been, you know, upended by Trump's need for publicity and Trump's agenda and Trump's court cases and Trump's phone calls and lawsuits and you know what I mean? Denials for writ in the Supreme Court. You know what I mean? Like you've seen that's completely lowered the volume on, on the coming administration and by extension, taking their power from them. Well, your review, I think, does address the question that the way that we perceive this moment is based on our understanding of of politics, how it runs, power, but not just that, um, our assessment of legitimate and illegitimate power taking so that we feel upset if there is a tank that goes up the steps, crashes through the Capitol, and then someone walks out and says, I'm in charge. I think that would be like, oh, that's wrong. However, if it's a discrediting of someone's campaign, um, undermining even what they say through a, a very well-coordinated media package so that the audience, the voter, gets a very specific repackaging and scripted narrative and they don't get a chance to really consider the candidate's platform you know, holistically and well-understood, that's not thought of as an illegitimate power grab. So I think that's one of the things that uh, is fair here, but there's another part that also I want to return as highlighting is that when you stated that you don't think that many, I'm paraphrasing here, that in the United States, we don't really understand what a modern coup would look like. Yeah. And, and I think that's a very, very clear uh, way of framing and understanding of what's happened last week because I was having a talk with my dad about this right as it was happening. And he said something very unique. He said, this doesn't make sense because I don't see the military. And then I said to him, what do you mean? And I knew what he meant. He was like, well, you know, you, if you're going to do this, you probably would need the military like, and he starts naming all these countries just like you, you know, like anyone, I think, with a very basic understanding of global history knows how this plays out in different parts of the world. In fact, right now, you can look at the continent of Africa and you can look at these small countries playing themselves out the same way, these power battles that are bloody and these people that become generals that weren't really in the military or if they were in the military, they're not really operating as military right now. For us in the United States, I think we wanted to see that or we not that we wanted to, but that's the only way we would understand it. And since we didn't see it, we felt this wasn't the same thing. And even to give a little bit of credit of what, what a lot of us are hearing now, we're hearing things like there were many members of the military that were actively participating in this campaign in small groups, but then a lot of us went ahead and pushed back and said, yeah, but they weren't really on the clock. You know, they were off the clock as military people. Uh, this this woman who died, I believe she's a former, was it Navy or Air Force? Um, she right. wasn't operating as a military person. She was off the clock. And maybe that's why this is so difficult for us to make sense of it. Because even as people say this was a failed insurrection, 
when people say that, I'm questioning like, if you really believe that, why aren't why weren't you so why weren't you that alarmed or why are you back to normal today? Why are you shopping in your big box stores like nothing happened? Because if that was true, I would be concerned. I would be alarmed and I would be thinking like, how do I prepare to protect what I believe is important instead of just going, oh, that was an interesting meme and I'm passing jokes around. Uh, passing memes is, is, I mean, I understand what you mean by that, but as a joke, what does it symbolize? Well, to me, it symbolizes like we we took it lightly. We're joking around, uh, making funny memes. I expected no, more serious. You and I are on the same. You and I are on the same track, man. And uh, so these memes, as far as I'm concerned, uh, again, if you go look at it, yeah, you might have the, some funny dudes that make them, and they get a good laugh at them. But by and large, a lot of those, again, who is making them? You know, like if you look at, um, you know, some of the people like QAnon, okay. Uh, that person, whoever he is, is probably a they, all right? But they spend a fair amount of time putting all that out, right? So a lot of these people that busted into the the Capitol, I mean, they really subjectively believed that Democrats or Satan worshipping, uh, you know, people that uh, hurt children, and if you just think they would, they don't have anything to substantiate that, but does that stop them from acting on that belief? No. And just like that one guy that raided that Washington, D.C. pizzeria, Comet Ping Pong, the old P- Pizzagate thing, all right? He went in there because he said, well, if that's really true, if there's children being trafficked, and, uh, you know, the Clintons are responsible and John Podesta is responsible, then I'm going to put an end to it. I'm going to put my life, I'm going to lay my life down on the line to save those children. And he did, right? He got as far as the door. Oh, no, I guess he got all the way in. But he's like, where's the children, you know? And they're like, there is no children, guy. You know, like they they knew it was on the Internet, like the the pizza staff. They just said, here it is, you know, here's the closet where we keep our coats. They were just showing them around to, you know, kind of placate him, like, come on in. If you're going to do this, come on in, have a look. There's no secret basement. He's like, where's the basement? You know, where's the elevator? And he's like, this, this is a single floor thing. And, uh, but he, you know, so you, that was four years ago. And think about how weaponized information is now. And in order to weaponize it, you have to have people that work on it. So again, you know what I mean? Yeah, you could say it's some 400-pound guy in his basement. But some of these people are good enough to do it professionally, and they are. And I think one of the things that they're trying to do now is to kind of, uh, you know what I mean, make light of it so that they can do it again, you know, like to make this idea that, these people were a bunch of dummies that went in there. But really, a lot of those people, right, they they were the QAnon stuff. You know what I mean? They, they thought, well, we can't let these literally what they thought were evil Democrats steal their great president's election out from underneath them, you know. And so these, you know, you get this level of, you know, this atavistic idea of well, we're not going to look at facts are, you know, bothered to understand how Georgia tried to protect its ballots. We're going to just feel, and if that feels right, then we're going to act on that belief, you know? And so you did, you see a lot of people, and, and we're not just talking dummies that are out of work that should be in a car wash or something. We're talking about like retired military people, retired officers, you know? We're talking about, you know, people that are, purportedly educated and you know what I mean? Even part of the political class, right? You had a West Virginia lawmaker among the rabble that broke into the white house, you know, his grandma said, well, thanks for nothing, Trump, you know I mean? And it's like, well, why don't you blame your grandson for the kind of information that he's taking in without a critical eye, you know, but that is a whole idea of weaponizing information is that uh, it's planning thoughts into people's minds and it 
you know what I mean? When they can win, they'll win unapologetically. And, uh, you know, when they can't, they're going to have to deal with the other side taking power for a while, like what's about to happen with the Democrats running all three branches of government on the federal side. Then they go for bromides, like, oh, well, you know what I mean? Give your neighbor uh, a benefit of a doubt because he's got a reason to be mad, you know? That's a long way from quote, F your feelings, as was said to people four years ago, or, you know what I mean? Cry babies, you know, remember even, I can even remember going back to 2000 when they had, during the recount, right? It was the Republicans that first went federal with their their lawsuit in Florida, right? But what did they say, right? They were calling them sore loser men instead of Gore Lieberman, you know, like just saying how you know, the people on the Democratic side are a bunch of crybabies because they didn't win the election this time, you know. But it, but you couldn't get away with saying that when the right loses. Oh, no, they have to. They have to go invade the Capitol, I suppose. But they, they didn't get there by themselves. They had uh, some people that are working very hard to instill that call to action and call to power within these people, you know. And I don't want to downplay a lot of that either because a lot of these people – are desperate. There's a whole bunch of people that feel like they've lost their country and they should in fact feel mad and they've lost it in the same way you and I have lost it, but they're blaming the wrong people. The people they should be looking at are people that have, uh, you know, deregulated things like having clean water and clean air and have made it so that we have a stagnated living wage that has to now be improved by local governments and state governments because the federal government wouldn't do anything or couldn't do anything for 13 years about it, you know. that's Those guys, yeah, and we don't do heavy manufacturing anymore, and we don't have, you know, protected uh, workers' protections and labor unions. All that stuff has been dismantled, so they should be mad about uh, a lot of the, that same feeling that we've lost our country, I think, except instead they've been, I think, brazenly uh, taught to blame the most recent arrivals, which are other workers that have also been displaced by the vagaries of free trade and also by uh, American foreign policy. And if you look, we have far more. I think people should realize that they have far more in common with the workers of these other countries than they do with the rich people of our own country. They're workers. We're workers. They're looking for a fair and livable wage. They want to protect their families. We want to protect our families. Uh, but if you look at, you know, these American troops in the capital, you know, it does um, make you realize it's like, well, we are occupied by boots on the ground as so many other places that have American occupation and bases in them across the world. It's just that it happens to be in our own country now. There's something that, that you stated, which for me signals a connection to something I've been hearing for the past four years, that there's like a divided America, you know, a, a difference between those that feel that the United States represents them and those that it doesn't. And as I hear that statement, I can't help but feel a little bit frustrated because I think of my own experience growing up in Southern California, knowing that that's what it was already. So that for the past 30 plus years that I've been politically aware, I guess, I've heard that same thing. So I was thinking about this question. I says like, why now? What is different about this moment that causes such a difference of expression? And to, to answer that, I would probably say something we've been talking like uh, about with Trump in particular, these past four years revealed a shift. And I think that shift can be given credit the type of media communication that you and I have been talking about didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago. It wasn't so easy for us to feel that immediacy with people that we do not know. However, the rhetoric around people feeling disillusioned with the new America, the browning of America, 
Mm-hmm. I feel that that's something that goes back to the founding of the United States. Early on, it was always about thinking about how the racialized body was going to become a defining marker of being an American and who was going to be included and who was not. The anti-immigrant rhetoric, pretty much the default. And now right. we enter this uh, realm of contemporary politics that feel new and I'm trying my best to say this isn't new. This is very much old. Maybe there's new expressions, but I also want to give credit to something that I feel is accurate, that there are new aspects of it. I don't think the, the fringe militia uh, separatist movements are new. I think we can go back at any moment in the U.S. history and see those moments, those communities in existence. But I do think that this version is new. And I'm curious on that aspect right now, if I can kind of put you on the spot this way. What is it that that the West Coast misses <laughs> from the conversation? And I am being uh, kind of selfish and saying West Coast because I'm, I'm stuck here for a minute. And I feel very, <laughs> very insulated. I feel like I'm in a bubble. Even though I, I hear national news and international news, I feel I'm living in a bubble. You know, because I can he- I can see the limitations, you know, whether I meet someone from outside the West Coast and they don't know what I know. And I'm a little bit surprised that they don't know certain things. But also the way that this moment, uh, this like militarized rhetoric, separatist rhetoric is being highlighted in the news. But they are also, I think, trying to cast them as like, French, ultra-right-wing crazies. And I'm thinking that would be easy for me to deal with and harder to think about them in a much more complicated way. So what do you see from where you're at that the West Coast doesn't? But also, what can you speak of in terms of this like paramilitary or military connection to what's going on here? I don't, so I, you know, I don't pretend to have any greater insight than what other people have or what they're seeing. But one thing that I I have seen, number one, is that the left has continually been wiped out throughout America's history. If you go back to uh, Wright the Wobblies and uh, Eugene V. Debs running for president from prison uh, to, you know what I mean, the killing of workers, uh, was it Leadville, Colorado in 1906, where rather than negotiate and collectively unionize, you know, even the um, worker strikes in, in Appalachia in 1974 and 1977 and 1971 here and uh, over, you know, with the miners, mine workers of America, or I'm sorry, it's United Mine Workers. You know, you you've seen these great uh, movements of, uh, and then they've been marginalized, you know, now the, I think the average blue collar worker, uh, not only is not a member, right? The union membership is only 11% now compared to 44% at its heyday in the fifties. And so, you know, along with that collective bargaining, goes with job insecurity. So you have a lot of people that are doing whatever their boss tells them to do because boy, oh boy, they need that job. They need to, they got kids. Those kids need braces. They've got to hold on to that, you know, dental benefit to keep the, keep the bills paid, you know? And so you do, you see a lot of people that might otherwise be willing to speak up. They can't speak up because darn it, they need that job and uh, they can, and you've even seen that now. I mean, the coronavirus has kind of accelerated that process of having companies take a good hard look and go, do we really need to, what can, what can we do without? How much productivity can we get uh, out of how few people, how long can we be closed and still survive, you know? So yeah, I think you've really, that's also laid the American system bare for all to see is this idea that uh, if you go to other countries, particularly civilized nations, they have time off, like in China even, right? China is not 
as you know by the OECD considered a uh, a first world that's still considered a developing nation. However, they have such a strong safety net that, you know, like, if you go, for instance, during the holidays, they actually open up all the hospitals in the major cities, so that if you're if you live out in the countryside or you're in some rural area and you have some sort of problem that you can't get looked at, you can drive into the city and get looked at. Because most people drain out of the big cities. Most people are not from the big places like, you know, Shanghai and Beijing and, uh, you know, a lot of the other bigger cities, Wuhan. They're, so what happens is, you know, they go back home. They go back to wherever their villages are for the holidays. And so what they do is they make it so that the villagers can get, go the opposite way for free on the highways and get, without having to pay toll because most of their interstates are are toll roads, you know, but they can get all the way into the city and get looked at for free and get whatever's wrong with them done for free, you know? And that's, so I think that's one of the main things that you're seeing that's really starting to to show in a way that's never shown before is that the primacy of the state uh, is being shown not to be as effective as it once was, you know? It used to be that in America's greatest days, it could survive because it had very strong institutions. And now you've seen a threat to that order, namely a president that wants to be a dictator. And uh, he has tested the very integrity of all those institutions. And some of them have held up better than others. And like, for example, you saw a letter from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? Which are all the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and each of the Joint Chiefs for each of the now six military branches that we have. And, uh, you know, they have all signed saying that we support the rule of law and we, we you know, they completely uh, denied any legitimacy to uh, the, you know, to the siege of the capital. Why is it important that that is? Because it's signaling we are not the president. We are the joint chiefs. And we are, we obey lawful orders. And if you're wondering whose side we're on, and if you're wondering if, you know what I mean, we will support this president in some sort of coup d'etat where he gets to stay in power beyond January 20th, and this, this is a way of them signaling no. We're not going to do that, you know. And then you've ever seen other places that have fought uh, and not done so well. For example, the Justice Department, you know, the Justice Department had a, you know, a mass. He was like trying to get all of his cronies like Roger Stone uh, pardoned and even have the prosecution withdraw their case. And they did. They fought him, but not with not as effectively as the military did, you know. And then in so many cases with the intelligence, the intelligence were the ones that really provided a lot of the ammunition against Trump with the Russiagate thing during his first set of uh, impeachment, right? I mean, if you look at who originated the whole idea about Donald Trump uh, talking to uh, Russian leaders uh, offline and them invest, you know, investing in him. Uh, a lot of that originates almost entirely within the Central Intelligence Agency. You know, like so, you're definitely seeing that some of the institutions are playing politics, and they have chosen a side. You know, and some of them have tried their best to remain uh, impartial. You look at like the Department of the State, right? The Department of State had. Uh, a mass exodus of people, uh, you know, EPA, a lot of those people weren't allowed to do their jobs and a lot of people were demoralized and they resigned even if they were career civil servants. And uh, so you do, you've seen, you've seen a lot of our institutions weakened considerably by the last four years of President Trump. And some of them are still standing and uh, for instance, the court, you know, Donald Trump had this kind of like this businessman, like quid pro quo, like, okay, well, I guess, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, it's time for you. You know, I went to bat for you. I played ball. I could have withdrawn your application. And I now I'm expecting you to make do with, you know what I mean? By being there to 
help get my calls, you know, take my calls when it's time for me to keep my presidency going, you know, and there you see the Supreme Court, uh, you know, they threw every single one of his suits out immediately, you know, they denied cert on a variety of reasons. So there was this kind of like this baited breath moment in this past month where we're wondering, what will the Supreme Court do, you know? Well, you know, now that he's added, you know, two members to the Supreme Court, what will they do, you know? How will they act? What is the deal, you know? And so, you know, I just do. I feel like we've definitely seen, uh, you know what I mean? We've definitely seen how strong our own institutions are. And they're not, the answer overall is they're not as strong as they used to be. And, uh, you know what I mean? A lot of them serve corporate power rather than people, you know, and that that's hard too. It's a hard reality. I think that's where the people stand in their frustration. But the part that I was kind of like reflecting on has to do with a rhetoric of acknowledging or trying to give credit to the present, you know, last four years as something new when I feel that it would be fair to think about, you know, the last 60 years as something very recognizable where, you know, corporate interests were one and the same, uh, whether it has to go with even further, think about like the ways that we think about how we were able to expand the United States and how we took these opportunities to really kind of expand our national territory, but also in conjunction with the favors and interest of private expansion, whether it's the railroad or, or it's companies in Central America and Hawaii. And I'm thinking about this conversation in this way that like I've been right, uh, reading and hearing that this moment of this quote unquote protest movement or riot or failed insurrection is new because the people were frustrated. And I asked myself to think about when were they not frustrated? The people have been frustrated for generations, but yet here, I think maybe we are entering the conversation about certain factions that have entered, um, whether this was the first time that we had a, a president take on a populist, and I say populist in a very overgeneralized way, um, direction of communication that, that kind of bypasses some of the, what I would call like those translators. The, he... He is literally speaking to the community. Because I think about, for example, um, whether it's President Obama, he was a great speaker, but I don't think he was able to really communicate viscerally to the community. Uh, I knew a lot of people that felt passion, that he was in there, they felt respected, they felt great. But if he said, come here on the 6th for a rally, they would not have gone. And I thought that was unique. Like, I think this is the moment where we see these uh, changes. And then the other part that I feel is this conversation of people feeling threatened, scared, and secure of the institutions, specifically the, the military, the police. Uh, we, we've gone through this past year of dealing with the pandemic. At the same time, we're trying to push for a police accountability. And here we've been telling people that the police was not a neutral agency and people didn't believe us. And now, right, as, as I hear the writings, people are questioning you know, the role of the police in letting the, the people go in and some of them partaking. And I think, as you mentioned, the, the questioning of the role of the institutions, the strength, the legitimacy keeps coming up. And as we kind of see this moment of transition right now, as we prepare for the 20th, um, I think that's the part that people are, are really looking forward to because in their minds, this will be a moment of restarting. However, I don't think it accounts for the people that are still feeling upset even if Biden takes in, uh, takes on the new role, Trump um, 
well, has just been impeached. I don't think there's going to be a trial. However, it, it, the impeachment did go through. So now we're thinking about this, like, um, it's not an ambiguity. It's not even like a question mark. It's more like people thinking that it's a restart after the 20th. But what happens to all these people, the, the thousands upon thousands that are that were there in DC and they went back home? Are there others in their home uh, states and towns that are feeling the same way? And are they preparing for a second wave of protest? One of the things that I've been worried about is that I've seen a lot of people go back into that like Obama era complacency because there's now going to be a Democrat reassuming the Oval Office again. So I do that. I see a lot of people that were complaining, uh, much to my satisfaction with what Trump was doing, and they were writing their congresswoman or men. And then when Obama was in office, they weren't doing any of that. And I was like, well, you know, like Obama's the one that brought us DACA. You know, now you know, and they everybody was, you know, blaming Trump for putting kids in cages. And it's like, wow. He wasn't the first one to do that by any stretch of the imagination, you know, and if anything, he had to, you know what I mean? He worked really hard before he caught up with the number of people that Obama probably put in, in cages from Latin America, you know? And so I, I just hope that a lot of people don't use this as a reason to hibernate, you know, because, you know, Obama, you know, this is how, you know, it's been touted to us is if you like to Obama, you know, they're going to like Biden, too. It's going to be more of the same, you know. And it's like, well, I wasn't so crazy about a lot of the stuff that came out of Obama. I wasn't so crazy about Libya. I wasn't so crazy about meddling with Ukraine's elections. And I really wasn't very interested in that. A lot of what now we realize now are some of Hillary Clinton's signature pieces of foreign policy work, you know, I really, I don't want to see that, you know, I didn't, the ACA, yeah, okay, it was better, but with for the ex political capital and real capital they expended, it's like, well, we could have just had a regular single payer system for what they pulled, and now the wings have been pulled off the ACA anyway, and it may die anyway, you know, given with the lack of states participating and the funding involved and the, Trump's not funding the reinsurance programs that have now been cost that have been turned on to the states that are trying to continue to offer the health insurance marketplace. It's just like, it's just like a quick fix. What it's turning out to be, you know, 11 years later with so many of its, you know, the tenants of it pulled, in the courts and by executive order, you know, so I just, I hope people don't go back to sleep. I hope they maintain that high level of preparedness to hit the streets and pick up the phone and even run if they don't like what they're seeing in Washington, you know, not just giving the Democrats a buy because their party's in or because Trump's out, you know, I hope people continue to stay engaged. Dave, I want to thank you for this what? conversation. Hey, you're quite welcome, sir. You have just finished hearing a conversation with Dave Poyer. Our topic addressed the January 6th incident in Washington, D.C., where a rally slash protest turned into a moment of a breach of the U.S. Capitol, resulting in the death of five people and leaving many with questions of the significance of this moment and results in many of us having these talks in our local communities. We are left with many questions. And as we work through these questions, we come to the realization that this moment will have a lasting effect on not just national politics, but local politics, our sense of membership, within the nation state are questions of illegitimate and legitimate forms of power. But more than anything, I feel that this will leave us with a 
much more invested form of understanding our sense of place and participation. I want to thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Daniel here on the Deer Report. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, any comments you may have to the following email. Comments at dereport.org. You can also check out our past segments at dereport.org. Thanks again for listening in. Stay strong, stay safe. Join us again next week.